0: The Bane Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, hardcover powerhouses and electrostatic mouse mazes. Uplifted dolphins shown able to speak but are sad and refuse to do so. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have part one of a two part interview with David Weber and Eric Flint discussing their new entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series and the fourth book in the Crown of Slaves storyline that David and Eric have been working on for over a decade. That book is to end in fire. And David and Eric will talk about its creation and why it is a pivotal novel in the honorverse. Good stuff coming up. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die. Now here's the news. The October hardcovers and original trade paperbacks have arrived. Transported by a giant magic pumpkin that was previously scraped of goo, laminated, and painted with luxurious celebratory colors, bordering on the gaudy, but definitely befitting autumnal festivity and merriment. First up, there is To End in Fire by David Weber and Eric Flint. The huge authoritarian Solarian League lies in defeat, crushed by the Grand Alliance of Manticore, Haven, and Grayson but a threat yet looms. The Mason alignment has still insidiously been working toward the enslavement of humanity. Now is the time to destroy this ancient evil. Now is the time to fight the final battle and see victory through once and for all. Also out is Trinity by Dave Barra. Former Rim Confederation Spaceship Captain Jared Clement is offered the chance of a lifetime. Command of humanity's first truly faster than light vessel. The destination, Trinity, a newly discovered star system where strange signs of possible spacefarers may lead to humanity's first alien encounter or to interstellar war. Also out in October, the Spacetime War by Les Johnson. Humanity's colonization of the stars is brought to its knees when matte black ships of an advanced design appear in colonial systems, laying all to waste. Standing against the invasion are British Navy Captain Winslow Price and Anika Ahuja of the Indian Space Forces. They are sworn to do whatever it takes to defend Earth, even if it leads each beyond space and time and to the edge of ultimate possibility. To End in Fire by David Weber and Eric Flint, Trinity by Dave Barra, and The Space Time War by Les Johnson are all available at booksellers everywhere. (music) This is part one of a two part interview with David Weber and Eric Flint talking about To End in Fire. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. want to welcome david weber and eric flint back to the podcast hey david and eric how you doing
0: hi um
1: david weber is the creator of the honor harrington series if as if we didn't know (laughs) additional honorverse collaborations include spinoff miniseries manticore ascendant which we're gonna have a new one in um coming up in the spring Mm -hmm. it's gonna be great uh to insurrection is coming out Yeah. yeah Uh, that's what Timothy's on. And with I Eric think, Flint, he's the author of the Crown of Slave series. We're about to talk about that. He's also the author recently of the time travel novel, the uh, Valkyrie Protocol, and the Gordian. Uh, Gordian what? The Gordian. Um,
0: that's the Gordian Protocol we, and the Valkyrie Protocol. Now, there's another. The, the Janus file is uh, has been handed in and accepted and is I'm in the release somewhere. Um, and as a matter of fact, uh, last week—that actually, Friday—Jacob uh, emailed me um, his first pass rough draft on the fourth book um, in that series. Um,
1: so that is going on. That is called the what is what are we calling that series? Um, I
0: don't know the oh, the, the I Gordian g- <laughs> series. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. It's
1: called the Gordian something paradigm yeah. or something like yeah. that. But it's yeah. cool. It's got spaceships and time travel in it. Uh, that's with Jake apollo and uh most recently um governor which is the sequel to path of the fury um was out with uh written with richard fox um, that was
0: a june release
1: yes yeah yeah and uh, david has done many other collaborations in series both fantasy and science fiction and sometimes both science fiction and fantasy at the same time um eric flint is a modern master of alternate history fiction um although it's actually science fiction he he is the author creator of the ring of fire series starting with first novel although he's about to ha- we're about to put out that that sequel to the uh, 1812
2: um we're gonna bane is gonna start yeah um, yeah yeah yeah
1: and that is that's like alternate history straight up right that's,
2: that's yeah there's no time travel element in that it's it's pure alternate history you want to call it that but yeah i it's a-
0: Eric, I'd almost re- okay. I can see where interjecting the uptimers into into Ring of Fire makes it science fiction. I I understand okay. that, but I think it's some it's it is for want of a better term, artificially induced alternate history. Mm-hmm. But with all of the all of the all the downtimers in there and their their interaction and so forth. I think calling it alternate history is exactly correct. Um, sure. Why
1: can't it be both? No,
0: um, it can be both. Eric swings both ways. Eric can answer
1: for himself, of course. But I would say to that, that the uh, there is a lot of philosophical issues in the series about the fact that they are actually changing up time. Um and what that will mean and and talking and there's a sense of awe and wonder that you you really get from science fiction by that sort of talk and that sort of speculation and it infects how the characters act because they know what happened to them in the real history Hmm. it's something you don't get in just straight alternate history as much right i mean i don't know if if you would agree with that eric
2: yeah there's a different dynamic um Writing the, uh, uh, the, uh, the 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 title I call the Trail of Glory series, but it tends to be called the Sam Houston series. Yeah, Sam Houston's a central figure in it. Um, it's a different dynamic, and and, and here's the tricky part: um, when you have a an historical period, which is true of pretty much all of them, that's far enough removed from our own um it's dramatically tricky to get modern readers to be able to um um, um sympathize with um people the time um and it works in 1632 in that series because it's 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 modern enough by the time you get to the 17th century you're in the modern era i mean it's early modern era but but you know, it's not. But like if you were doing one um which I've done in the fact I'm doing one with uh, Gorgon Paula, which may have published the first two books of it.
3: Macedonian this is about two and, uh, two
2: years after the death uh, of Alexander the Great. Uh, and at the very first or second chapter in the book, the uptime uh she's retired historian. Says to the people, says you have to understand, these people are not civilized. Yeah, and 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 somebody says, but but Aristotle. Yeah, I she, she said, I know, I know all that. They are not civilized. Okay, yeah. they really they do not think the way you do. <laughs> they really really don't. And but you have uptimers that are providing them with a an alternative view of things, and that mm. it, that makes it much easier to work with. But Working in the Sam Houston series, which is set in the Jacksonian era, the reason I picked Sam Houston um, was partly he was genuinely a nice guy. Um, and secondly, he, I needed a southerner for the thing to work. And he was either for either a southerner or northerner, had the closest to what a modern concept of race would be um than anybody of the time so he, he it's possible to work with him. and the other main character i worked with was a uh, uh, an irish radical one of the men of 98 who you know had come over so he had his own ways, but it's it's tricky mm-hmm. and um especially because i'm walking in a minefield in that one because yeah. you're dealing with with relations with indians with with yeah. africans yeah. especially and these days yes yeah. there's a whole lot of mythology that works in a lot of different ways and yeah. um you know that the ultimate source of all evils a four, four word sentence my shit don't stick yeah uh, and The problem is, no, everybody's does, and that includes the people. One of the things you've got to be careful not to do is to infantilize Indians. Uh Um, Because, yes, they were often victimized, but they were not victims. It's not the same thing.
0: Yeah. Um, So it's that whole question of agency versus lack of agency. Yeah. And, and, and You can have agency and fail. But that's not the same as not having agency yeah the way i put
2: it to people the shorthand way i put it is uh how many of the cherokee slaves died on the trail of Tears? um uh, because all the southern tribes are slave-owning tribes they all have plantations and they made their slaves go with them yeah and nobody knows because they didn't keep track of it yeah. um and that's part of it is that yes they they were definitely victimized no question about it I mean the Trail of Tears yeah. is just horrendous um but real history is not you know a comic book with with yeah well the, 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 the bad guys and you know and, and it's real simple, and no, it's not. It's a lot more complicated.
0: The, the Apaches, American Indian neighbors, were not a whole lot fonder of oh, the no, Apaches than anybody else. No, no
2: everybody <laughs> hated the Comanches. Yeah. I mean, everybody did, and yeah. and it's not hard to understand why, you know. Well,
0: I, uh, I point it, I point out to people that you know when uh, when the Aztec Empire fell, okay, there were what three hundred Spaniards total involved, okay. The only reason the Aztecs fell is because their neighbors and their subject people hated them, you know, and they saw an opportunity to take them down. That's the problem is that it requires a historian's perspective to look at that. And I think most people think in terms of, you know, I've got this snapshot of history. I don't have a a multi-frame movie of history. I've just got this little snapshot and that's the way it was because that's the way it is in, in my, my perception. And it's hard to get past that. Even when you're consciously trying to sometimes, I remember, uh, you remember the original John Wayne, uh, uh, true grit movie. Yeah. Okay. I had an awful time for the first 15 minutes of that movie. I thought this is the most worst written movie I've ever seen in my ever. And then I realized the screenwriters had actually written it in period dialogue.
2: <laughs> oh, that's always a mistake.
0: Okay. Rana, once you got past that first 10, 15 minutes of going like, I don't know about well, this. That was from I'm... the
1: Charles Fortis novel as well.
0: So, yeah. yeah. But that, that's where you all of a sudden, I mean, it just clicked. And, and in a way, that was part of what was moving you back to the time when this, when this movie is, is taking place. Okay, and it's why the second True Grip movie, it's one of the reasons there's such a difference between them. It's it's not just the actors. It's not just the director. It's the fact that the second script didn't try to to get that period dialogue. Um, I'm trying to remember who it was. Uh, It was a a historical novelist. I don't think uh, I don't think it was Frank Gerby, but anyway, um, he said that as a historical novelist, one of the questions you have to ask yourself is, do you want to be true to the historical period, or do you want to write it in a way that your readership will have access to? Yeah. Okay. Because if you wrote in a early nineteenth-century idiom, okay, with a young man seeking the 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 girl's hand in marriage from her father okay if you looked at it you know to a 21st century reader you're like you have got to be shitting me (laughs) okay but that's what he really would have said um anyway this has we're really, really just yeah. pounding away at <laughs> anyway. dead, dead fire here, aren't
1: we? It <laughs> should have been. Uh, by the way, I think Murtry said that. Um, all right. So David has also contributed to Eric's series, mainline series, uh, in, as in the novel 1633 and 1634, the Baltic War. Um, as, and so you guys have played in each other's universe for a long time. and Are you uh, out- saying
0: we're old?
1: yeah (laughs) (laughs) going
2: on about 20 years isn't that
1: a suave way of saying things? I Um, didn't think so I caught you (laughs) (laughs) anyway uh, and they've done it again and out now at booksellers everywhere is the ebook of to end in fire and the 3D uh, printer version of the ebook to end in fire which is the uh, which is the honor verse the honor harrington series the crown of slave saga is what we have on the cover here um, well,
0: on on the wall behind eric
1: super enormous
0: is, is the actual art for the cover the entire piece yeah. i think it's one of the best oh, yeah. well, we that, have the, that we've uh, done yeah, so actually wonderful.
1: on the print out of the ebook you can see the whole thing
0: yeah. But yes, but you have to take it off the book. Nice,
1: <laughs> yeah. nice wrapper. No, but it's
2: nice because this is this is what David actually did. I mean, you know, yep.
0: before all the other yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um,
1: it's a Mattingly cover. Is that? Yeah.
0: I believe so. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and the only thing that I really don't like about the wraparound is I know the type had to go somewhere. But we lose so much of the the face yeah. well, and, that, and the stars because of the t- the typography across it and its coloring. Yeah, so yeah. We'll, is, we'll, we'll take gorgeous. your names
1: off next time, and we'll make sure. That,
0: that, okay, that'll we'll, make more room. Yeah,
1: <laughs> make some room. For, yeah. um, I'm sure that you can get this print from David if you.
0: Uh, oh yes, I know I, nice I can. <laughs> well, you can. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. That's, I think. I think exactly.
1: Mattingly will sell prints of his his work as he, well. He sells
0: prints of most of them, I think. Yeah,
1: it, it's um, he does a wonderful job of of reproducing it and signing it and everything too. Yeah. But and expensive. I think
0: he's done he's he went purely electronic. What twelve years ago, thirteen no, years ago? That, yeah, know, it's been a long time.
1: Yeah, yeah, but he'll 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 do a lovingly loving reproduction of it and sign it for you. Yeah. I'm sure, and um, I love his work. Yeah, he's great. Um, and he's a wonderful man to yep. just sit and yep. talk yep. to. Yep, 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 yep. Um, and well, anyway, uh out now at booksellers is to end in fire, uh, by David Weber and Eric Flint. It's the fourth book in the Crown of Slaves storyline and David Weber's Honorverse series, It's Enormous. It's um it is definitely a, will make an excellent Christmas present. Mm-hmm. Um it's definitive and climactic for the Crown of Slaves saga and it's just good good stuff um so uh this one maybe we should talk about the origin the the meta origin the real thing like uh, you know in our world um, of how this came together because it was a it was a a bit of a saga in itself Um,
0: this was probably the hardest of the projects that eric and i have have worked on no i
2: think so
0: And there were several factors involved. Um, One was the biggest one was that when we were originally discussing the storyline, one of the things that we hadn't thought about was that all of the other Crown of Slave novels are set behind where the timeline has advanced to in what people think of as the mainstream novels. Okay, so basically, when Eric's working on his part of the book, he has the bones, the spine of of the history already laid out so that he he can work around it and so forth. Okay, and I've done, for want of a better term, the heavy lifting on where all of the major polities are going, which means that when he's looking at torch and the uh, the Audubon ballroom and whatnot and what they're going to do he's interweaving that in between events that have already been established okay this time this book begins although the first scene in it is come slightly before the book really begins with the end of uncompromising honor and so it extends into a time slot that hadn't been mapped out OK, and normally when we're doing one of these, Eric does the, the, the first draft of his part of the book. There are parts that are going to be mine that we know are going to be mine. And it'll be like, Eric will put David fights a battle here, you know, <laughs> whatever, into his, into his draft. Um, and this time around, he had to employ a whole lot of characters from my solo novels, and the majority of them hadn't really been in the crown of slave stories before, so Eric had never worked with them, and that meant that he hadn't internalized them the same way that I had, and so there and and their actions and and reactions were pivotal pivotal plot points in in some cases, and so if you put a foot wrong there, which it's really easy to do with somebody else's character okay then you have to go back and think well does this entire plot point work because it depends on michelle hinkey reacting this way to 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 carry it if, if if you see what i'm saying so we had that going on and then somebody got covid um the the Eric was delayed getting me the manuscript by some of the other stuff that was going on. Okay. And then I had COVID in January. And for about a month, month and a half, I really couldn't write. Uh, you probably remember, uh, Tony, when I was trying to finish up the World Breakers short story. Yeah, I
1: remember. You were doubting yourself and thinking oh, it to, was... uh, and, uh, you actually turned in one of the best stories we've ever written, of course. But anyway. <laughs> but, uh,
0: it was Drek. I knew it was Drek. Yeah. you know, kind of thing. Yeah, so the all of that was was in the mix. And so it really wasn't until, what, March, Eric? Maybe a little yeah. later that we really started getting into it and we started figuring out that we had quite a few things that we needed to, to work our way around. And this is really in almost every respect, this is the original novel that Eric wrote in terms of who does what and where the action winds up going, okay? But every single page of it is also a, it's a lot more of a joint effort all the way through rather than discrete Eric threads and David threads because we were passing files back and forth. We were messaging, you know, and uh, Tom Pope was involved uh, as the keeper of our technology and so forth. And there were times when I was like, oh my God, this is so gonna not work. And the time pressure got tight enough. We really didn't have time to push some of the stuff back and forth the way that we normally would have. Um, Eric would be working on like the the, the plot strand with uh, Saburo uh, and Ariane, okay, while I'm over here working on honor and marshaling the forces to go. And then we'd just be putting it together and we were handing it in, in tranches as we got it done so that you guys could start, start it through the copy edit process. The thing that is remarkable to me is that I think, and I, I, I hope Eric agrees with me, this may be the best book we have done in the entire Crown of Slave series.
2: I think it probably is. It's, yeah, um, yeah. Um, I and I say that because I think all of them have been really good. But um, mm-hmm. um, see, here's the thing about *The End and Fire*: it is the culmination, in a sense, of the Crown of Slaves quartet. But it's also a mainline novel, mm-hmm. and it it is where you go if you want to follow the mainline of of the Honor Harrington universe it's where you go from uncompromising honor this is yep. mm-hmm. um, and there's another thing that, that was difficult which is which i can't go too far into because i'm giving too many spoilers but there there were <sighs> they were plot difficulties that were just built baked into the story and what was going to happen because there were there were never. See, the problem is it's hard to talk about until the book comes out because I, I I would have to give away spoilers.
0: But what, what I can't imagine how a book by you and me could possibly have that problem. There. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> um,
1: well, it's about well, a secret well, conspiracy, um, and and so and there are many revelations. So you don't obviously it's built in to have problems talking about.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah. But oh, yeah. what is true is that what David said is that um, I, I reread it when the book arrived, when I got you know my copy. And yeah, it's fascinating because we kept almost, not quite all, but almost all of the first draft that I wrote, which was pretty much most of the book, but practically every part of it, David, expanded modified so it's both the same and different um Mm. and it's um it's 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 striking for me to read it because uh, and by the way just to make something clear i thought all of what david did improved it um i wasn't grumbling about it at all but uh, um but it's um yeah, it was a toughie.
0: <laughs> well, part of part of it is going back to what Eric was saying about this pushing the 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 this is a mainstream as so. Okay, I don't differentiate in my mind between the mainline books and the other books. They're all part of the the honor canon corpus, whatever you want to call them. And anything that's in any of the books is equally accessible to me for whatever I'm doing in the the mainline books. Okay. But this book, part of the problem was that I have a better conceptual grip on the hardware and the capabilities of the hardware than probably anybody else, okay? Tom is, you know, is like, no, David, you can't do it that way. I'm like, why not, you know, kind of thing. But... Basically, when you got to figure out how the technology is going to work to accomplish a given plot point, okay, one of the problems we would have is Eric would write a plot point point. I'm like, oh, that's really great, but the tech doesn't work that way. And so I would have to figure out a way to make the tech work to give the storyline result and the character result that Eric had baked in the first time around if you see what i'm saying and that's one reason why there's... by the way
1: david i noticed that you actually used the phrase in dialogue in this book Ooh, shiny yes um, i
0: did <laughs> which... i did yes
2: <laughs> uh, the first this has happened before it's not i mean in other things david and i have done but it was much more so here the first time i encountered this was uh the second story i wrote in the uh under Harrington universe was a novella called fanatic um, that appeared in one of the anthologies and mm-hmm. I had a, a, a scene where um, some officer, officers are in a room or, and they're discussing something and a midshipman comes racing in and she's all upset and she says the cat has gone crazy and she started up the dreadnought you know the engine and I had you know one of the officers reaches out and and puts his fingers on on the wall they go god yep she's got the engines going and and then i get a letter back from david saying eric those (laughs) engines don't have any vibration (laughs) i am sitting here thinking david you invented all this i mean you know (laughs) so one of the reasons that. David and I work well together, is neither one of us is a a control freak. And so David said, here's what we'll do. We'll have auxiliary engines that get fired up at the same time. And they're the ones that are actually causing a vibration." But um, yeah, that happened several times. And the one that that (laughs) I got grumpy, not grumpy, but it happened right in the very beginning. I have uh, uh, Catherine Montaigne instructing her ship Verbally to do this, that, or the other, and and I get messages from from David and Tom Pope saying, Eric, that technology doesn't exist in the Outer Hurricane Universe. And I said, We have it today, you know. And he said, Yeah, and David. Yeah, I know, but I didn't think of that
0: twenty years. Well, ago. no, we don't have it today to the extent that you were using oh, it. Oh yeah, yeah, fine. but you yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, well, it's kind uh, are you, are you of like... talking
1: about the three D. Uh, the floor no. drops away. No, no, no. He's, ta- he's, ta- ta- he's he's he's
0: wow. he's talking about the the AI. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. The the uh, all right. Bear in mind that I wrote the first two Honor Harrington novels two years before Al Gore invented the internet. That's how long the series has been going on. Okay. I had a bag phone at the time. All right. Um, I also had just finished, uh, recently published uh, Mutineer's Moon and the Armageddon Inheritance and Path of the Fury, okay, and in both of those universes, you had direct neural interfacing, you had fully aware uh, AI, you had, in effect, the the internet, even though I wasn't calling it that. So when I got ready to do the Honor Harrington's, I wanted to be sure that there would be a break between the the one and, and the other, and I went with the assumption, which I think is defensible, that truly self-aware AI is not attainable, OK? But that what we can do is we can do increasingly brilliant software that, that, that counterfeits uh, the, the level of you know, responsiveness that looks like self-awareness. And the, the universe is lousy with AI. Okay. I mean, it's everywhere. I mean, you know, you don't really think that you control a starship with a joystick without a lot of AI being built into the process to interpret what you're doing. But the Honorverse does not use, has not used um, AI, voice controlled AI, uh, self-programming AI, whatever, in critical control functions on things like starships okay it just they they don't do it um and we're moving more in that direction but eric was like way far out in front of the of the curve on that and i was like no eric we can't we can't do that uh so so she had to turn and into a was, person
2: <laughs> there would be a lot of that there's a, an episode that takes place in uh basically it's a pirate hangout called hole in the wall uh and um essentially our, our hero, or actually in this case our heroine, um, is going in and, 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 and to some degree hacking into um, some very difficult stuff to hack into. And and I, you got to understand, I, my knowledge of electronics is not great.
0: Um, so I'm okay. OK, Eric's knowledge of electronics is marginally less than my knowledge of yeah. electronics.
2: <laughs> well, I'm all this with some advice from whoever I can get it from. And, and I sent the chapters to David and he said, I, I like what happens, but you can't do it this way. <laughs> you can't get there from here. <laughs> well, what we wound up doing, or he wound up doing, was figuring out a way, um, this is clever. I've done it in a few books of my own, where where the heroes don't actually get what they want. But serendipitously, they figure something out because of, of you know
0: anyway. And in a lot of ways what they get is better than yeah, what yeah, they yeah, wanted. Yeah, yeah. But they don't know that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So um well let's talk speaking of Catherine Montaigne and um uh, and the beginning of the book. Let, so this really is in many ways as you both said this this is a sequel to Uncompromising Honor. This is the next book of stuff that happens in the Honorverse. yeah so um this is where you would go after that it's not something that's happening simultaneously with um with uh, uh um, any of the other books or anything no, th-
0: like this that. this one this one is moving the entire storyline ahead yeah. about about 16 17 months eric am i remembering correctly i can't say again we we moved we moved the entire storyline about 16, 17 months ahead in the yeah. course of this I think oh, yeah. yeah
2: yeah we wound up the original time frame I was using was just too compressed and
0: well partly that was because Honor was pregnant I mean well yeah I had forgotten that and well
2: yeah. this is
1: the this is the book where you where you take care of the Mason alignment um, or at least. Um, I, it, it's I, a book I, about. We're not
0: going there. Well,
1: See, this I, is it's what it's a book about. Where it, it, it's about the Mason alignment. Let's put it that way. Or, or a it's, great deal of it is about that.
0: Okay. It, all right. I will. I will put it this way. In this book, you find out one hell of a lot more about the Mason alignment mm. than you have seen in earlier books. Yeah. Um, so tell
1: us where we are at the beginning of the book, and and what Catherine um, is is because we get a bit of a a setup of what's gone before at at the very beginning um, with some cool uh, non-AI, but very cool VR. um,
0: Well, I think, I think Eric. All right. There were certain baked in elements of where um, um, our, our, where the evolution of um, the manpower and the other elements of of the the uh, the system government the Mesa system government I mean anyway uh, that had been you know where they had elements that had to be in the mix okay because well, what, all right so we well, just let, had me, a, let me, an let, me enormous... let me let me finish they had sure. to be in the mix going right. forward because of what I had in mind for the the total okay but what Eric did is by bringing Kathy in and, and Jeremy X and Queen Barry and all the rest, he actually gave a whole lot more texture uh, and, and depth to the evolution of the government being imposed by the Secchies, by the Grand Alliance and, and everything else. So, so who are
1: these people this is Derek. what i want you to tell me because i mean people who haven't uh, you know I, most people will know what's happened but um there's been an enormous final battle and honor and and manticore has won again mm-hmm. with a grand alliance against the Solarian league yeah. and the mason alignment which is trying to be a puppet string puller of of sorts has um has has their planet they blew up their own planet at the end of they did
0: not blow up their own planet uh, they, eric are we gonna let him get away with he blew up their own planet they didn't no. didn't do that. all
1: no. right they, there was a there was a an inner core of uh it, just to explain this so i don't have to say it okay all right all <laughs> right all right all
2: right all right David, you want to do it, or you want me to do it? How do you
0: want to handle this? Uh, let me let me set the initial context, and yeah. then you handle what we did with it in the last book as well as this one. Okay, so for those souls who have not already encountered the Mason alignment, the Mason alignment is an organization. We find out more about exactly how it evolved in this book, but it is a secret organization dedicated to the genetic uplift of the human race. And the inner core of the mason alignment, uh, which is what honor refers to as the core of the onion, because you discover you keep peeling away concentric rings and you still haven't reached the heart of what it's really all about. But the core of the mason alignment basically has decided that it's time for another speciation of of the human race that will create sort of, Um, will take Plato's Republic a step further, okay? There will be genetically differentiated groups that will be performing functions within a greater human society. And obviously they will require guidance and leadership by the alphas who happen to be the guys who are running the Mason alignment. Now, this is not where the alignment started. It's where it has evolved to.
2: Well, it's okay. where one branch of it. Let's put it that way. Well,
0: well okay, that's fair. That's fair. Where the inner core. Yeah. Let's let's call them the Detweilers. Yes. Okay, because it's the Detweiler genome yeah. that heads this branch of the of the alignment. Okay. Right. Now, there's also another Mason alignment. That isn't building ships, isn't sending out ship, isn't sending out fleets to destroy entire star nations infrastructure, isn't maneuvering the Solarian League into wars, etc, etc, etc. Okay, and they are in a sense, a cover for, or used as a cover by the Detweiler inner core of the alignment. And what you were talking about, about blowing up their own planet, happens when the the Detweiler Corps realizes that, you know what, we have pissed the Manticore off once too often. They're going to come and conquer this damn star system. We have to get out and we have to cover our tracks. And that is what Eric wrote most of, almost all of, uh, in the book before this. And he and I discussed Operation Houdini, which is Yeah, but Eric is the one who actually put it together. And then at the end of it, I said, oh, wait, you know, this is going to be so great to break the Grand Alliance's kneecaps. (laughs) So go, Eric.
2: Well, yeah, there, um, and then there's yet a third element, which are people who are part of the evil alignment, um, but who didn't really quite realize what they
0: were getting into or who have been lied to about what they were getting. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, and those are characters that got introduced first in, uh, I think it was torture freedom was when
0: we introduced
2: Jack McBride. Am I right? I think
0: so. I think crown, okay. Crown and slaves was the first one. Yeah. Um, He's not, yeah. Torture freedom is the second one. That's where they're on Mesa and they meet him and they get, um, Hiram out. Right. Yeah.
2: And he's the first and he's a he's a top leader not not all the way up but you know I mean very definitely high middle level management call him that of the uh, evil alignment and but he's really pretty good guy I mean you know it, it's uh and he just finally can't um there's a there's a there's an historical model behind all this which at least I always have. Partly because of my own political issue but i always have conscious which is what happened to the bolsheviks um, when the revolution started to degenerate and it took a lot of people just couldn't adjust in time to realize what was happening and um So you get that with Jack McBride. He dies in that book. And then uh, in the next book, his brother. Well, Zach, Zach is, is
0: introduced in the first and, book, but he's not really a viewpoint character Yeah, yeah. in yeah. that book. yeah. And, he's,
2: and he winds up being a major character in, uh, at least an important character in uh, the third book, uh, called of Ghosts, and winds up with the end of the girlfriend, who's also in alignment. And then they become important characters in this fourth book mm-hmm. and we are laying the groundwork for further developments there but um it, it's the thing that's, that's tricky to work with characters like that is um how do you explain people carry doing stuff that's objectively really evil when many of them are not actually personally that evil um and oh, one, it, it's the old it's the odd I'll, I'll just give me a sec, David. yeah 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 it, it's basically the old paradigm the road to hell is paved with good intentions that's essentially what the model is mm-hmm. and and there's a part of the alignment that stayed true to its original you know very humanitarian outlook and then there's the detweilers who are uh,
0: monsters well, um it's also it's also fair to point out, and we, we make this point several places in this book. The Mason alignment came into existence because the Beowulf Life Sciences Code, which is basically the gold standard that the civilized galaxy adheres to, um, outlawed uh, deliberate genetic uplift. Now, they didn't outlaw genetic engineering to suit you to an environment or anything else. What they What they were outlawing was what I guess you would call planned eugenics in the sense of we're going to produce a superior species. And it was outlawed for several reasons. One is that the Beowulf Life Sciences Code came into existence shortly after Earth's final war, which was lousy with genetic weapons and everything else, almost completely, almost made Earth completely uninhabitable. Okay. And they were like, okay, we're not going down that road again. But another part of it was that. The folks on Beowulf recognize that if you go this route, if you have people who are quantifiably, measurably superior on your genetic scale of what you're trying to accomplish, then you're reestablishing racism in a way, okay, because the alphas are going to be superior to the betas, the betas are going to be superior to the gammas. And so they were like, no, we're not going down that road again, all right? That was their logic, like six hundred years ago, when the life sciences code was 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 promulgated. All right, the problem is that they were both right and they were both wrong, which happens a lot in human endeavors. And the Mason alignment came into existence primarily for people who are saying, "Are you out of your minds? Look at how much we can extend lifespans, look at how much we can do for the general population. If you allow us to do deliberate uplift modification. Um, and then the whole thing got further complicated when Manpower Incorporated started producing genetic slaves, which further, it, which tied right into the Beowulf fear of prejudice between genetically superior different groups, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So by the time we get to where we are in this book, quite a few people in Beowulf have come to the conclusion that the Beowulf Code really needs to be revisited, okay? That we need to think about this some more, Um, but it hasn't been done yet, all right? And so the Mason alignment, you have a lot of folks who are in, at at Eric's suggestion, we divided them into the benign alignment and the malign alignment, Um, but the, the benign alignment is still, true to the original goal of we just want to make everybody better okay whereas the malign alignment is we're going to design a new cluster of species at with with the that's our end goal okay
1: but the i mean the benign alignment also has slaves on the planet right i mean the sekis are
0: yeah, but the benign alignment hates the genetic slaves, so the genetic slavery. Go, Eric.
2: No, yeah. no it's, it's um, what they are. Uh, I have a uh, a good friend of mine. Uh, Dave Ferris, is, is, he lives in Australia, now he's South African, and he grew up during the apartheid period. And, you know, there were a whole lot of, of white South Africans who did not agree with it and did not like it. Yeah, it was one of them. Uh, and so the uh, South African government drafted them and sent them to Angola. Uh, but people get caught in things, and and you know it, it's it's it, it, I don't know how to put it. it. It's things aren't always that easy as to you know to how you do it. What is true with the people of Benign alignment? None of them work for manpower. Mm-hmm. Um, none of them are overtly involved in any of this. They've done their best to you know, stay away from it.
0: Um, they've actually worked against it.
2: Yeah, they've worked against yeah. it, but at the same time, there's, um, when, after Mesa is, is conquered by uh, by the 10th fleet, one of the things that happens is that Audubon Ballroom slaves, they call their people strikers, they're called terrorists by other people, Um, but they show up on Mesa and they start playing a leading role and one of the characters who we first introduced actually as far back as Crown of Slaves. Mm was a character named saburo x and um he wound up with a girlfriend who was one of the so-called scrags and then she gets
0: killed uh scrag scrags are descended from earth's final wars genetic manipulation yeah
2: yeah yeah they were sort of ukrainian super soldiers and they tend to be an arrogant bunch which Oh yeah. and partly it's because they think they're superior which in some ways, <laughs> in a lot of ways they are. And um anyway, her name's uh, her name's Lara. Anyway, she and Saburo get hooked up, and then she gets killed in the, I think, in *Cauldron of Ghosts*, the third one. And so, Saburo. Yeah, I think,
0: I think, I think she got killed in one of the solo books, the, the assassination attempt on Queen Barry because she yeah, saved yeah, yeah, Barry's life.
2: Yeah. yeah, that's the yeah. one. Yeah. um and part of what happens is you start seeing the interaction between uh, all the different elements in in Mason society, and we have a model which was South Africa. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. it's like what do you do with a society that's really riven?
1: Yeah, that's really interesting because that yeah, yeah, I can see and, that. And
2: you know, and at the same time, you don't want to you, you, you want to avoid you know butchery.
0: There, 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 are, there are two things, I think, that you really need to avoid. And Eric did this. OK. He has Webb du de deliver a homily uh, at one point about why the, the slaves on Mesa are not going to be looking for vengeance or, or anything else. And there are several really good points that Eric baked into this. OK. One is that they may be slaves, but they are educated. Okay, this is not Haiti where you have slaves who have been brutalized and all they know how to do is cut sugar cane. Okay. These are people who are part of a complex technological society. Okay. Another one is that in the secis who are the the descendants of slaves, but not themselves slaves on Mesa, but who are an underclass, okay? You have people who have been, they've been basically crime bosses, but they have been societal leaders within the Secchi community, okay? And then in the, 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 the full citizens group, okay? You had a percentage of people who, whether they were part of the alignment or not, were opposed to genetic slavery, but there wasn't much they could do about it. And you have the members of the benign alignment who were actively opposed to genetic slavery. Okay, so you've got all these elements in this mix, and the two things that you have to avoid, I think, when you've got this mix, and I think we did this, is you have to avoid a situation in which what Eric was calling butchery happens, because it, it, we could have written it with a bunch of pogroms and everything else, but we would have really had to twist Mason society out of shape to do it. Okay, that's one thing. But on the other thing, the other hand, you can't just magically go to everything is sunshine and light. Okay, you have to work through the process in which these people who have never had a voice in governing themselves suddenly have to be given one. And how do you do that? Plus, you've got a military occupation force in the middle of it. Um, And I thought that by and large, this, this is something that Eric and I talked about quite a bit before we actually started working on the book, but I thought that Eric did an outstanding job of pulling those different societal elements together in a way which is plausible, I think reasonable, and satisfying to the reader.
1: Well, that's the, that's the first part of the book, which is what do you do with a problem like Mesa? Uh, basically, which and um, by the way, can we also just briefly say what Manpower Incorporated and uh, and Audubon Ballroom are, and uh, just define our terms, just so we.
2: The Audubon Ballroom is is an organization of ex slaves, which was roughly equivalent to the uh, the IRA. Um, the name Audubon Ballroom comes from. Um, that was the venue at which Malcolm X gave a great number of his speeches and they just named him after that, although usually they just call themselves a the ballroom, but um, they are assassins. Um, they, they do their tactics are quite similar to um, a wing of the IRA, I mean, the, the IRA had different branches in it, but they, they were, the way Saburo puts it at one point is he said that uh, we had, we did not have victims, we had targets. Um, and, and he says, we were not terrorists, we weren't trying to terrorize anybody, we were trying to exact revenge. Uh, and so the people they would target were people involved with manpower.
0: And there were no mass casualty events.
2: Yeah, no, there were no mass casualty. Now, that still meant they were bloody as all hell and scary as all hell, and especially because, because they are genetic, uh, alt- genetically altered slave. Some of them, like Saburo and Jeremy X, are really good pistol shots. <laughs> uh, and anyway, they're pretty scary. Um, and what happens is actually the, the, the vehicle we used is that Saburo gets the assignment of creating a new planetary police force for Mesa. Uh, and make, and you know, they're going to scrap the existing ones and, and create. And this is not local police, this is a national, kind of like yeah. roughly equivalent to the FBI.
0: Um, there, there are a couple of, okay, the police forces that interacted primarily just with the full citizens don't yeah. disappear. OK, right. it's the it's the paramilitary police and the ones that were specifically uh, involved in suppressing the Sekis and the genetic slaves that just totally go away.
2: Right. Yeah. And what happens is that some of those people um, volunteer and want to join the police force uh, and, and it's how Saburo deals with them. And it 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 wound up being, I think, a a, a good part of the not 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 a, not a huge part
0: of the book, but it, but well, I think I think it was I think it was a a big part of it, and I think what you've got here is Siburo's understanding that we have to incorporate people from the the previous establishment into this system if it's going to have any legitimacy in the eyes of the people have been here all along, but at the same time, we have to make it crystal clear to the secis and the ex-slaves that no, this is not the Misties, uh, uh, yeah, under so under put, another name. Uh, like
1: the, the SS of the um, of the Mason inner core.
0: I would I would say that no 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 that this was not the the okay the Misties let's were be the, let's be let's be careful here when we say inner that we're not talking about the mason alignment we're talking about the mason system government okay right right and i'm not sure that ss would be the best example i mean you know it it might i think
1: okay there were secret police of some sort though yeah, yeah but, but
0: that not, that's yeah. more gestapo than ss
1: okay yeah. all right uh, yes. you see what i'm saying yeah yeah okay
2: what what the uh, what i always think of the Mysties is a a a a, a harsher and meaner and nastier version of the french uh the french have a national police that is pretty notorious for um you know and they're the ones that get used to you know crush demonstrations stuff like that and well there's not as bad as the ones as the Mysties, but it's kind of like that it's not think of of
0: think of them as the carbonieri with a really bad attitude. Okay. No, no. Think of it as carbonary SWAT teams. Yeah. Okay. That are being, you know, I mean, that's essentially what, what you're talking about here. And then there were the, the Mason planetary defense forces, which is like the regular army and so forth. And in the previous in, uh, in, in cauldron, they get called in. Okay. And we see them in operation. They're still here in this book and they are being incorporated into the new, Government, the new political structure. This and how? Up. What
1: is that government? So we have Queen uh, her mouse at the, um
0: No, that's that's not yeah. Mesa. That's Torch. I know, but... no,
2: yes.
1: We... There, so there's two worlds. There's Torch and Torch was 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 a slave. What yeah.
2: they have is 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 uh, I think, and I don't think we got past this in this novel. It's a provisional government. What they put together. Um,
0: we and... got pretty much we got pretty close to past it. I mean, Chicharron is now, he's president and whatnot instead of chairman of the board. But yeah. that is still, yeah. yeah.
2: Well, the the big problem they have is that, that uh, uh, slaves who just got freed are about 60% of the population, and they don't really have any leaders. Um, so the Secchies, the, who are basically the freedmen, wind up playing a disproportionate role in that. So it's an evolution, but Mm
0: -hmm. Um, And then they they also, they have imported ex-slaves who are involved in the process, who are primarily coming through torch, like Saburo himself. Um, And these guys have legitimacy with the slave population because they were slaves, and because they were part of the resistance to slavery. Nobody's going to accuse them of being a tool of Manpower or the the entrenched uh, entrenched elite. The problem is that it's going to be a while before we produce domestic to Mesa slaves with the expertise the experience to take an effective role in in uh, governing themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of the things that they that they have to be careful about on Mesa is the countervailing pressures to hand the levers over to people who don't know how to manage them too soon versus the, well, we're going to take the position that we'll know when they're ready, and somehow they're never quite ready for us to hand off to them, okay? Um, and that's where having somebody like uh, Saburo or Jeremy X involved in, in creating the provisional government is a really, really good thing.
1: That was the first of a two-part interview of David Weber and Eric Flint talking about To End in Fire. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. Will the people of Earth bow to alien overlords, or will they live free or die? When aliens trundled the gate to other worlds into the solar system, the world reacted with awe, hope, and fear. But the first aliens to come through, the Glatoon, were peaceful traders, and the world breathed a sigh of relief. Who controls the orbitals controls the world. When the Horvath came through, they announced their ownership by dropping rocks on three cities and gutting them. Since then, they've held Terra as their personal fiefdom. With their control of the orbitals, there's no way to win, and Earth's governments have accepted the status quo. Live free or die. To free the world from the grip of the Horbath is going to take an unlikely hero. A hero unwilling to back down to alien or human governments, unwilling to live in slavery, and with enough hubris, if not stature, to think he can win. Fortunately. That man exists. Here is the latest entry in John
3: Ringo's Live Free or Die. Chris picked up his phone groggily and checked the number. Hello? Chris, sorry to wake you. It's John. Could you come in a little early today? We've got a manager's meeting. What's up? Chris asked, sitting up and rubbing his eyes. John Marin was the director of Skywatch. He knew his managers didn't get paid enough to be woken up in the middle of their equivalent night. It's Halo. There's been an anomaly. We'll talk about it when you get in. We've got a video conference with Collar at four. Please try to be there. Yes, sir, Chris said. He looked at the time and sighed. Might as well get up. Day was shot to hell anyway. Good afternoon, Dr. Heinz. John Marin, in spite of his name, looked and sounded like the epitome of a New York Jewish boy, which was what he was. His first PhD was from NYU, followed by MIT and Stanford. His brother was a top flight attorney in New York who pulled down a phone number every year and his mother never let him forget it. He kept trying to point out he was a doctor to no avail. Dr. Marin, Dr. Eisenbart, Dr. Fickle, Dr. Greenstein, Dr., 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 Dr. Dr. As first discoverers, we have named the object the Godrum Ring. This will, of course, have to be confirmed, but there is an anomaly we are having a hard time sorting out. We had a cycle that was doing a point to that portion of the sky, but when we attempted to find the ring, it appeared to have disappeared. Disappeared? Chris said. How does something ten kilometers across disappear? We wondered the same thing, Dr. Heinz replied soberly. I was able to get authorization to do a sweep for it, It took three full sweeps. Your sweeps cost about, Dr. Maron said, a million euros for each, but something that was once there and now is not, we considered the outlay appropriate, and we were right. We finally found it. Here is the new data. The astronomers leaned forward and regarded the information for a moment. It slowed down, Chris said after a moment. He finally found a finger that wasn't chewed to the quick and started nibbling. Was there... It didn't have anything to cause a gravitational anomaly. It's coming in from out of the plane of the ecliptic. Most of the stuff in the inner solar system lay along a vaguely flat plane called the plane of ecliptic. Earth... Mars, the asteroid belt, were all formed when the sun was a flattened disk. The outer layers cooled and congealed into planets, and then life formed, and here we are. We are all star stuff. If the ring had been coming in along the plane, it might have passed a moon or planet and had a change in velocity, what was referred to as a delta v. But there weren't any planets up in the solar system, and it was inside the Oort cloud. Correct, Dr. Heinz said, as if to a particularly bright child. From the point of view of real scientists, those who can do, those who can't teach, and those who can't do or teach work for Skywatch. Is this data confirmed? Dr. Marin asked very cautiously. Skywatch generally only made the news when they screamed, the sky is falling. Since every time they'd screamed that it hadn't, they'd gotten very cautious. And this wasn't the sky falling. This was... Absolutely, Dr. Heinz said. However, we have sent it to you in raw form. We have also contacted the Russian, Japanese, and Italian institutes. Yes, Dr. Marin said, nodding. I think we need to stay very cautious about this until we have a confirm all around. It's a spacecraft, Chris blurted. We need to be very cautious, Dr. Marin said, turning to glare at Chris. But it's decelerating, Chris said, waving at the screen. At the current rate of delta, it's going to come to rest somewhere near Earth. It appears to be headed for the Earth-Soul L2 Lagrange point, Dr. Heinch said, nodding. What it does then, of course, is the question. We need definite confirmations on this before we take any action, Dr. Marin said. I'm sure we will have those quite quickly. I would request that you contact Paloma for their take. Good day, doctors.
1: That was the latest entry in the complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Jankiewicz and the quiet vibration of auxiliary engines and the wop, wop, wop of the big flippers, real starships used for swimming in the ether sea. Plus thanks, praise and gratitude to David Weber and Eric Flint, authors of To End in Fire. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.